Welcome to the Online Broadcast. I'm Curry Cedric. And I'm Brett Johnson. And we're both anti-fraud experts. But with very different sets of experiences. I've been in the anti-fraud space for well over a decade, working with hundreds of the biggest online companies in the world to help them prevent payment fraud. And prior to several years ago, I was a fraudster. I committed several different types of fraud and crime online until I ended up on the Secret Service's most wanted list, spent time in prison, and since that point in time, I've dedicated my career to helping businesses and consumers protect themselves against people like I used to be. I have to say, this feels pretty good, Brett. Not too bad, not too bad. <laughs> I know we both received a lot of emails and, and contacts and everything asking, when are you guys coming back? So we really appreciate everyone's patience. Can we stop being vague? Okay. <laughs> This isn't the vague cast. Okay. <laughs> so essentially, um, what's been occurring is I would say primarily the merchants that are being targeted for this right now. And I would say that, like with any big trend, we start to see these kinds of things trickle into other verticals. So if you don't sell these items, don't sit back too long. But um, things like high dollar cameras, laptops, gold coins, um, gold bars, things of high value, especially overseas. So those are the merchants that are being targeted at the end. Essentially, merchants were seeing orders being placed with the billing and the shipping address being the same and the address at the bank matching what the bank had on file. So, um, you know, whenever you provide your address to the bank, they have that on file. And then uh, um, it's through the AVS system, the address verification system. So those are really some of the least risky orders for merchants. That doesn't mean that they don't look at them, but if they're able to see that the billing and shipping address are the same, the bank has that address on file. That's a huge part of it because that really provides you a lot of safety. Um, and also if they're using an outside verification system and they can tell that that consumer has um, lived at that address for several years, they're going to think that that is not very risky. So they will probably approve that order uh, prior to a couple months ago. So right. <laughs> I try to make sure that any merchant that was on their list that I knew I reached out to, that, you know, it looks super not risky, but then the merchant was getting a chargeback stating fraud from the cardholder. So they kind of had to reverse engineer the original order. And when they would call the consumer who placed the order, who, you know, their name was on the, the card, it got a little weird uh, and not every company does this, but some companies do, especially when they're very confused about why this would be fraud because everything on their end looks, looks great. Right. Uh, and when that happened, the, sometimes the consumer would just repeat over and over again, it's for business. The purchase was for business. Like what? <laughs> um, or it's for personal use and just shut down the conversation. But it was like, well, if you just bought a $6,000 camera, I think you're going to, you know, tell me more about it or sure. something. Um, and so what ended up, you know, after lots of research and um, a few, very few number of these consumers who actually opened up to what happened, it turned out that the fraudster was actually um, taking advantage of other places in the transaction. So just like you have your fraud triangle, um, in order for a purchase to go through, it involves a consumer or a person who has the credit mm -hmm. card, the credit card company, and the merchant that they use the credit card at on, right. online, especially. Um, in this case, the um, fraudster realized that when they placed the order using someone else's card, there would be red flags that the merchant would see, fraud um, deterrent systems would pick it up, et cetera. So they started recruiting people online to place these orders themselves, but not with their own credit card. So um, if, so say somebody is, you know, your grandparent or your aunt or something like that, um, you know, gets approached and it was really varying on Instagram was probably the funniest one. I thought, not funny, but just like, huh, that's a new place to get <laughs> unassuming people. Um, but also the tried and true romance scams, um, reshipping scams. So work from home postings on online classified ads saying, all you have to do is accept packages, put them back in a box, send them out, and you'll get $30 per package. Sure. 
Um, other times it was someone posing as a wealthy person who works for a nonprofit in another country, um, maybe Vietnam, Malaysia, you know, they try to stay away from Nigeria <laughs> nowadays, right. but, um, you know, other third world countries and saying, Hey, I really want to buy this Rolex for my, um, for my nonprofit. I know it sounds silly, but people, you know, do believe them. Um, or I really want to buy gold bars because, you know, currency in this area is really, you know, in flux. Um, but it won't ship to my country. Can you receive it? So you have an unassuming person not using their credit card, but when they, when they say, yes, sure, I'm happy to do that. Then that fraudster is asking them for some of their personal information, their name, their address, et cetera. And then they're taking a credit card that they already had, a stolen credit card that's not related to that person who's placing the order. And they're calling that issuing bank as if they're the cardholder and saying, I need to change my address or I need to add a second address. Uh, and that address is what gives merchants the feeling that they're shipping it to the person who owns the card sure. because it matches the bank. And so by doing that, they're using these unassuming consumers to accept, to place orders and to um, accept packages. And then they're ultimately getting the product. Uh, yes, they have to, there might be sometimes where they don't get the product, but to them, the odds are good because it's not over their money in the first place. Um, so this is becoming a real problem. And, and my concern is that fraudsters have realized that merchants are getting pretty good at, at, detecting fraudulent behavior and fraudulent information, but they're not, there's not a lot of consumer education on there about so, what's normal. So, so my question is, is, is so what's new there? <laughs> I mean, I mean, about, yeah. about that specific type of fraud, right. what's new? Right. I mean, we, we've to seen me it's a hybrid of two different frauds. But I mean, though, I mean we've seen, new. we've seen, you know, credit card, stolen credit card providers before use mules to, to place orders. Mm-hmm. Mm -hmm. But seen, typically when they do that, they're not changing the address at the bank. So, sure. So, so you've got a mixture of both a, a change of billing mm -hmm. and a mule being used to, to place the order. I mean, it's right. not, that, that's not, it's a mixture of, of old school things. I mean, certainly the, the billing address is being updated to a reshipper. Is that, is mm -hmm. that still what you yes. guys are seeing? Is that? Yep. Yep. So, I mean, that's, that's a new trend that, that, that kind of a new trend with the reshipping address added to it. And it certainly, Certainly makes the orders go through a hell of a lot easier mm -hmm. if the billing address is a reshipper on that point. Right. Um, but at the end of the day, I mean, we're still seeing it, it's so it's the use of mules either and, and mules are used all the time, either for laundering or for receiving packages or even placing orders. So mm -hmm. we're seeing the use of mules across uh, a, a, a different set of uh, websites or, or use cases, whether it be dating sites or what have you. So we're seeing that we're seeing the change of billing on an eight on an account takeover. Mm -hmm. And then we're seeing, I guess the new thing with the, well, it's not even new, but the, the kind of the newest thing would be just the adding uh, the billing address change to a reshipping address. Right. Right. That's really the new part. I think it's a hybrid between two standalone tactics that we've seen for years. Right. The part that really gets me, and this is my sense of justice that doesn't just extend to fraud, um, is that the merchant is the one being held liable for this. Okay. Um, to me, I think that that's not fair. I think that that's, um, it's, it's a breach in the system. So right now things are very siloed in the system. Right. And because of the credit card rules, whenever a credit card is stolen and used online, traditionally the merchant takes the liability for that. However, the point of compromise was not the merchant. The point of compromise was at the point of the bank. They well, I mean, are the ones there's whose several points of taken compromise, over. right? Yes, I mean, yeah. But when you're looking at this from a who should be liable perspective, the bank is the one that allowed someone who wasn't the cardholder to change their address to reflect that of a reshipping mule. Sure, absolutely. So the bank is is culpable, but so is the the compromised person whose card is being used. Absolutely, and right. But the merchant did everything they possibly could. The merchants who have all been hit by this, and it's a very large dollar number that even I'm aware of, and I'm sure there's a lot more I'm sure, not aware of. Sure, um, they're they're the ones who are having to pay for it, even though they've done everything that they're told. So I I am wondering, they a couple, can. you know, you were telling this story, and I, this is the first time that that I had heard gold bars. Ah. My first question would be, who in the hell 
is accepting credit cards for gold bars. That's the <laughs> stupidest. That is the stupidest thing I have ever heard. Well, I'm I'm 90% sure that that's what at least one of these companies told me um, that they said gold coins and gold bars. That's what I wrote down. So, so and, and I, mean, I could why. be wrong if so, if one of them's listening and they're like, oh, it's not for, I, from, yeah. from the time that I was committing crime in the, in the mid two thousands, of course, at that point you had, you had a few companies that would idiotically accept credit cards for, for bullion or for currency, mm-hmm. any number of things like that. And they quickly stopped that because, and this is in the mid two thousands, they quickly stopped that because you're opening yourself up for a variety of attackers to come in and try to defraud you. You know, you're basically giving them free money for stolen credit cards at that point. Mm-hmm. Um, so the, the business model became at that point, the business model became, no, we're, we're only accepting wire transfers. And, and even the wire transfer is, is for the business, they go through a variety of, of different, uh, verifications to make sure the wire transfer is correct. And even when the wire transfer was sent out, you had to wait a certain amount of time before you would receive your bullion or anything else like that. So I, I'm wondering who in the, who in the devil in this day and age would accept credit cards for for cash basically actually just doing a quick search on it it does look like the preferred method is cryptocurrency but um for obvious reasons but i i do believe that there are a few merchants that are doing that because there's actually been a couple that have attended um conferences that i've organized well let me uh let me give a piece of advice to any merchants that's doing that stop (laughs) stop it stop All right. Uh, that, that's the type of temptation well, that, that I would be, I'd be looking at that right. today. Like, Oh, oh <laughs> well, and just, so, yeah, I mean, I can be wrong, but I think that that's the case. I think that there are, um, you know, I mean, obviously it's not the fraud department's decision, unfortunately, within an organization, you know, what payment methods are accepted. So, um, you know, if they are accepting credit cards, then that's not really up to them, but, um, that is something that, you know, should be considered, but I guess, you know, I don't want to get too into the weeds or into the gold, the bullion, but, um, yeah, I do know that there's, um, it basically just says on this one website I'm looking at, it just says that if you're buying precious metals online, you may want to consider using cryptocurrency currency you may, you to may. execute the transaction. It doesn't say that that's required. Um, but anyway, so yeah, so moving on, it's, it's things with, you know, high dollar value, high sure. resale value. So right? the next That's question the I would have, so, mm-hmm. so a, a merchant or retailer is taking the order. They're running the address through some system. Yep. All right. So the, when they're verifying, I mean, they should see that it's a reshipping address. No, because it's a private consumer's address. So it's not a reshipper that's being no. sent to. Well, I mean, I guess that's a terminology hang up, right? Like it's a, it's more of like a, no, it's not, it's not a formal reshipper. It's not Okay. A, so then, so then actually this fraud is, it's not new it's at all. Mule. Okay. I mean, I, I, we were doing that kind of, excuse my language, but we were doing that kind of bullshit back when I was doing carding. Hmm. You'd get yeah. on monster, you'd round up some, some idiot to, uh, and we call them idiots, but some victim to, uh, to accept a package. And if you could, you'd give them the credit card, and even let them order that way. You've got a brand new IP from residential. It's clean. Right. And that's exactly what would and everything what was happening. Else. So I mean, yep. it's, so it's not really. And the, the fraudster is even sending a link to this person placing the order. They're sending them the full card number. They're sending it, you know, obviously right. bad guys don't care about PCI no, compliance and not sending full card numbers um, over email. So they're sending full card number and they're um, telling them just to place an order like, like it's their money. Um, because pretty much, yeah. Um, and so it, this may not be new, but it certainly is impacting merchants more. That's what I can say. Um, and so, it certainly has caught them really off guard too, because they're feeling like they're doing everything that they possibly no, can. I, they can verify that that, that that mule lives at that address and they, you know, and for all intents and purposes that they're the card holder. So that, that becomes the issue of, of, so we're not dealing with, with a crime that is, that's, that's new then. I mean, it's, it's basically using mules to place the orders with stolen mm-hmm. credit cards. Yeah. And I guess I, I wasn't aware that fraudsters were going to the length of changing the address and the information for the cardholder on the side of the bank. Oh, that's yeah. the piece that was new to me. But um, I mean, uh, so, so uh, here, here's my thing is, is okay. So there, 
and that, 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 to me, that's an ATO. I mean, that's, that's mm-hmm. what we used to call well, it. Well, it's an ATO the on the bank side. Right. Absolutely. Right. It's an ATO on the bank side. That's not how we identify account takeovers on the merchant side. Ah, um, so how do you identify, and here, here, that's a nice topic for discussion right now. So how do we, <laughs> how do I, we identify an account takeover on the merchant side? Because on the bank, what we used to do is we would call in or either log into the bank and update the billing address, right. the phone number as well, and wait a few business days and it would go through like butter. Right. And that, that does still happen. And I, I do know that there are a lot of banks that are trying really hard to reduce that and stop right. that. Um, and I, I do think that they've, they've done a pretty good job about that, but there's obviously a loophole. And, and there was um, one very consistent bank identification number that was uh, being used for a bank. And I was able to contact that bank and um, I, I had a contact there and a few contacts there. Sure. Um, and they took it seriously and they um, actually even exchanged emails with some of the merchants and, and people that I introduced to them about this. Mm-hmm. Um, however, they weren't able to do anything about the chargeback, but they were able to try to figure out where their, they obviously had a link point specifically at that bank. Right. Um, because across at least 10, 15 merchants, it was all the same bin um, a few months ago. So, so it was, yeah. So what's, what's going on there? And that, that's what we used to do with. Mm-hmm. Once you find a couple the vulnerability. I mean, uh, so, so, and I'm not, you've, you've not told me this bin, but when, when we were committing crime, it was, uh, there was a couple of banks out there and, and what you could do is, you know, these banks, they had a couple of, advertisements on TV at that point of these two old women talking about account takeovers. And, You're really trying hard not to say the name was, because of but, what but that we was, just talked about in the last episode, but you're still trying to give it away a little bit. Well, I mean, that, that, <laughs> that is what was going on at that point in time. Huh. This is the mid 2000s. Oh, that right. was the easiest bank to hit. Hmm. Even though they were the ones talking about account takeovers. Yeah, even though they're the ones talking about it. Do you and think that's because they were trying to educate the consumer while not I think it was I think it end? was yeah, I think it was because they were trying to put a good face on it. Right. Was what I think. Right. Uh, eBay was doing the same thing back then. Mm-hmm. That's why um, PayPal and eBay changed their entire system was because of what Shadow Crew was doing to uh, victims at that point. Yeah. Um, right. You know, the, the, so so the thing is is that, you know, the account takeovers are, are from the bank side were, were pretty easy at that point. Mm. It sounds, and the way that we would do that, that's why I, I lost my train of thought, mm. but the way we would do that is you would find a bank. All right. That was easy enough to do, to do the, we called it a COB, a change of billing at that point. They call it an ATO an account takeover now. So it was easy enough at that point to hit a specific bank and we would share that across the board and we would look for specifically that bin for that specific bank. So mm-hmm. I'm wondering if it's, if it's either that mm-hmm. or it's, you've got a compromise at the bank itself, a man in the middle attack, something like that. Mm-hmm. That's, that's harvesting True. these specific bin numbers that are being used, but either way, criminals are understanding for that specific bank, for that specific bin, that that bin's going through just fine and it's easy enough to, to change the address on, on the bank. Right. Um, right. And I think, I think that at least at the beginning, a few months ago, it was definitely targeting a, vulner, a vulnerability on the bank side. Okay. Um, I know that the person who was investigating it is someone who I trust a lot and I know was, was doing everything they could to try to figure out that root cause on their right. end. Um, unfortunately, they weren't able to share that. Um, with yeah, we me. had not a, always uh, a reverse feedback loop there. <laughs> right. I had a I had a contact in the Ukraine when I was a criminal that his name was Tron, and he had wide open access to Bank of America. You know, hmm. this was two thousand four, two thousand five. Uh, so much access that back when so, I worked for Bank of America, oh, actually, so fun I, fact. <laughs> yeah, it was it was wide open. It was completely wide open. As a matter of fact, when I started working for the Secret Service, Bank of America came in and talked to me about it, and they told me in a, in no uncertain terms that they would kick him out of the system, think they had plugged the holes, and within thirty minutes he would be back in again. Wow! So it, it was that open. You know, it's kind of like a, a sieve, just letting people in. Um, so, how was give, he doing it? Well, was it through hacking or was it because he He was there? a very accomplished uh, uh, computer guy. So ah, it could have okay. been a Okay, so he's a hacker tools. probably, yeah. right? Especially um, being in the Ukraine. Yeah. yeah. So it was, my, my question is, and that's, that's, I'm this guy that believes we have to deal with a hand that we're, you know, we have to play the hand we're dealt. Mm-hmm. So the credit card rules are set so that the merchant is responsible. That's mm-hmm. the way it is. It's written in stone until it's changed. Right. So how does the merchant identify an account takeover and what can they do at that point to stop that? 
Well, so there's two different things to kind of separate out. So like I said before, this isn't what a merchant would traditionally call an account takeover because they don't have a view into a bank system. So they have no way of knowing that an account was taken over at the bank unless they're contacting the person who placed the order and they're admitting what happened. Sure. Um, So there's really, because the account takeover happens at the bank, that's kind of the bank's thing to the... Um, to the merchant, that looks like a good order. If they find out that it's fraud, there is nothing they could have done differently from a process and procedure perspective. I'm going to go back to that in a second because there are things that they, that as a group we have all identified um, would, uh, you know, would uh, give you a heads up that, that this may be happening. But sure. Um, and I'll stick to kind of the ones that I provided in an article on CMP in December because okay. there's going to be a few things that, you know, don't want to give out. But um, so basically for the, okay, so actually let's start with, we'll start there and then I'll explain what an account takeover to a merchant is because I have a feeling that's going to be a longer conversation. So um, in this case, really the only ways for a merchant to spot this type of fraud um, is going to be looking at identifiers around the person placing the order. Uh, you know, traditionally they probably aren't in your system before. They probably don't place a lot of orders online. They're not very savvy. Um, because a lot of people read that you can make money off the internet, but they don't always know how. So then if somebody comes to them and says, Oh, I'll pay you 30 bucks a package. They're going to do it. Now, chances are those people will never get paid $30 a package. Let's just like throw that out there. It's not actually a business opportunity. Those guys are going to use you for as long as you can. And then once the gig is up, they're going to go on to someone else. Um, But a lot of times they're targeting people who are a little bit older, maybe um, late fifties and on possibly live in rural America. um, Aren't super internet savvy. So there are some merchants who have, um, identified their vulnerable items within their company and um, looked at the purchase patterns of fraud that has gone through already, this type of fraud already. So um, one thing that's true is that at least up until now, they're being very consistent with what they want. Two laptops or one camera, but they're very specific brands, all that. So they're looking at that. Then they're looking at, unfortunately, it's all manual. There's not a lot that can be done from a tool perspective. Um, because in order to know the person's age, you probably have to do a lookup in a verif- you know, verification system. Right, right. Um, you can't write a rule around that. Uh, there are some technology, especially at least one new technology I know of that's uh, just coming out now that, that would help with this case, but it's not you know, something I'm going to go into. So, so yet, but there let, are let me things, ask you. But it's really just, difficult. Just to, to, just to interject here. Mm-hmm. So... Because I'm getting a headache on this. Sorry. <laughs> no, no, no. It's it's just on me? <laughs> no, 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 no. It's it's just that we were when we started credit card thefts. We started with ATOing the bank. Hmm. So are you frustrated that it hasn't really changed? In I, I'm I'm extremely years? frustrated yeah. that that I, we're yeah. seeing that fraud wiping out merchants. Yeah. And there's That's no where I get tool. Upset too. There's no tool out there that can identify right. this. It's manual. Nope. So yep. it's it dates back to the inception of online credit card theft. So we're basically just repeating history. Is that what you're saying? Yes. <laughs> well, they always say to go to the path of least resistance, right? So sometimes it's, you know, it's not with technology. It's the, you know, it, and I think that because technology's gotten really good at catching other types of fraud, the criminals are going back to the less technical um, options. And for whatever reason, you know, this is where I get frustrated as somebody who has spent most of their career on the merchant side um, and who definitely has been accused of thinking that merchants walk on water, Uh, (laughs) not by you. Um, So I'm, but I'm, you know, I'm throwing that out there, but from the merchant perspective, it's extremely not fair. Uh, there really isn't anything that they can do to verify this because the bank system and the merchant system aren't talking to each other. And all the tools that a merchant has from a technology perspective, they can tell them everything in the world, but they can't tell them, you know, that that a recent change was made at the bank. Right. Um, 
I, that's not a hundred percent. I know somebody's going to tell me that 3d secure 2.0 is coming out. I'm aware of that, but let's just say that 90% of the merchants, especially in the U S but internationally, you know, as well, don't have all that. So let's just, yeah. <laughs> do you know, do you know what company I'm about to talk about again? Cause I, I talk about them religiously about how good they are with security. <laughs> Does it have to do with watches? It has to do with B&H Photo. Yes. Oh, that's what I meant. Sorry, sorry. There's somebody that worked at B&H Photo that now works for watches that I was confusing that. But yes. Well, but that's a lot of it's because they have the ability to do a lot of things that are manual. Yeah. Um, they've yeah. prioritized that. That That's why, that's one of the many reasons that they're good. The other reason they're good is because they were one of the very first targets to get hit badly. Absolutely. We, <laughs> um, we ate them alive. By you, yes. We ate them alive with this specific type of fraud that we're talking about today this so do you know how they how they caught you yeah other what, than what just BNH going started, super manual <laughs> that was it what bh yeah. did is they they started calling the bank they yep. would get you on the phone with the bank mm -hmm. and you would have a discussion at that point with bh on the line which Until is brilliant the, yeah it, it got but to the point that fraudsters were like okay we can't do that right we can't do right. that anymore Right, but it's not scalable for companies that are doing millions of transactions a day or well, hundreds I, of thousands. You know, Apple did much the same thing. Uh, yeah. Also, well, yes and no, but um, they, yeah, but I mean, that has to be a, a company decision, and especially in this case, it seems like the companies that I didn't mean to laugh there, but it seems like the companies that I'm just actually realizing now that that's the case. The com the majority of companies that contacted me were actually not the merchant in this case. Ah. It was actually um, the type of fraud providers who provide ah. charge fraud chargeback liability. Gotcha. And they their whole business model is to automate this. Uh, most of them, right? Um, and so for them, this was a huge challenge. And a lot of these companies, a lot of the smaller merchant companies who have very high dollar very highly desired <laughs> items within their um, within their portfolio don't have the resources themselves to or the knowledge to know how to prevent fraud so they hire these third-party companies that um, review their transactions and the way it works is if a merchant um, if this provider approves the transaction then if it turns out that the credit card was stolen that company is repaying the merchant back um, and which this, changes the conversation a bit. It, it does a little bit. Yeah. And that's why I wanted to bring it up is that I think that that makes it even harder because those companies don't have the ability to, to do it the You're way right. that because you take, you take Ed's camera store down here mm -hmm. at the corner. He, he may sign on to one of these chargeback guarantee companies, mm -hmm. the chargeback guarantee. And when he does, he's like, I don't have to worry anymore right. as long as the chargeback company says Absolutely. that everything's kosher. Right. Meanwhile, well, the fraud company. Yeah. Right. Meanwhile, this company is saying, oh yeah, the order's fine. And it's so then it's not the merchant that's paying, it's the chargeback company that's paying. Right. Right. The fraud company. Yeah. Right. They're paying the chargeback. It's very confusing. I know. I'm just clarifying so that, you know, the people who know fraud who are listening aren't banging their head up against their windshield sure. or something. <laughs> but um, yeah. Because and, if it's just the merchant, if it is, if it is Ed's camera store. Right. And he doesn't provide, doesn't rely on a, one of these fraud providers that's covering a chargeback. Then he's going to pick up the phone and potentially do a B and H and get the bank on the line with the, with the person who's placing the order. Well, yeah, to be honest, I don't think that that's something that banks allow anymore. Um, the only thing I know that issuing banks will do for a merchant um, over the phone is verify name and address, um, a yes, no situation. Okay. Um, and that still is extremely manual and only done by, uh, on a small percentage of orders. But even then, if they're calling the bank and saying, is this George Smith? Yes or no. Is this their address? Yes or no. The fraudsters already changed it. Sure. So of course it's going to go through. And, and that did happen in some cases. So um, my understanding is, and somebody can correct me, please, but my understanding is that issuing banks will no longer, I think Amex might still do it because they're both the merchant and the cardholder are their customers, right. but the way that Visa and MasterCard are with an open loop system, it's not the case. And so, um, they just, just see, don't, I don't, I don't the time know. or resources I don't, I don't, I don't to know do what, that. Uh, what B&H was doing is they would, they would be, the, the bank would be on the phone with the customer. The customer would right. have to interact with the bank, but, uh. Yeah, I believe that after, at least especially for the majority of Visa MasterCard um, 
the largest issuers, all of the, well, almost all of the departments that were in charge of looking at consumer risk online um, stopped after the recession in the U.S. from around 2008, 2010, mm -hmm. because banks did an analysis and said it's not our money. If, you know, so that's why if you used to rely on your bank to call you if there is suspicious activity on your card, but now that doesn't happen, that's why. Um, Amex and Discover still do that, again, because they're a closed loop system. But the banks looked at it and were like, well, it's not our money, it's the merchant money, so we can cut out this entire department. So it's, uh, yeah, so that's not something that can be done. But even if, you know, for a large company, that wouldn't be the case. But yeah, I found it interesting that even when I like reached out to merchants who, you know, I reached out to several high dollar, pretty well-known large uh, companies that sell electronics and none of them had seen this yet. Um, so maybe none the of them had seen were it. Were the young, well, <laughs> not to their knowledge, but let's throw out a caveat here. There's a lot of companies that don't always look at their chargebacks as detailed as other companies. So right. that's a whole other rant for Carice. Anyone that's listened to first season knows that that's my favorite subject. I mean, let, I want to be honest. I want to be yeah. honest about it. If, if it's Canon cameras and MacBooks that a retail that a merchant is selling, they're a target. Right. I mean, right. That, that's 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 all there is to it. You're you're a target. Right. But if you're a small company that sells those, you may not be able to have the ability to hire someone, you know, full time who really knows this stuff or or that has experience or that can manage the process. So you're gonna, you know, hire it out. And I wanna say before I get a million phone calls from these companies that provide this guarantee, I do think that there are um, scenarios and, and merchants, et cetera, that, that that makes sense for in some regard. I, um, you know, I, I, mean, I, I recommend, think that some I, of I them have it. gotten very aggressive and yeah. they know it and you know, that it's gotten a, to be a crowded field, but I do think that the service is good. I don't want it to seem like we're picking on them, but. Oh, I'm, I, I'm not picking. I mean, I, 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 did, I gave a camera conference and I recommended them. Right. That's why. Yeah. Cause I think I actually suggested it cause it, it does make sense, especially. Yes. And even for medium sized companies, I don't think that it's the best decision for all companies and there's certainly things to consider, but that's a case for every fraud provider. Um, there's always, you know, goods and bads for everything. So, um, but in this case, at the end of the day, these companies are still doing their due diligence and they're on the hook for it. And that's, I, I still have a sense of fairness when it comes to that. Okay. So I, then there's a couple of questions. Yep. <laughs> and I can still talk a little bit about the definition of, you know, merchant account takeover too, if that's helpful, but sure. let's, yeah, let's so, so this first. The, the two questions that I would have, and I, I guess it's, it comes in with that definition as well is for a merchant that is not signed on with one of these, and I'm going to continue to refer to it as a chargeback service provider. It's a chargeback <laughs> guarantee. Yeah, whatever the hell. So this chargeback well, charge guarantee provider is, yeah, is, it's just a different, I know, it's just a different and, and again, <laughs> classification. <laughs> it, it's a company that says that, hey, if, you're, if, we get, if we tell you that you can send the order and you send it and it's hit with fraud, we'll cover your ass at that point. Right. Yep. So this, this chargeback insurance, but then some of those companies don't like that term. Right. So yeah. Well, they may not like a lot, but get used <laughs> to it. So, my, my We're thing making is, friends left and right exactly. over here, Brad. So, so for a merchant that, well, it's, it's just, it's semantics. For a merchant that doesn't have one of these companies that's, that's guaranteeing this, how do they protect themselves against this type of account takeover that's going on? That'd be the first question. And then the next question is for a company, for a merchant that does, or it, it wouldn't be the merchant, it would be for the chargeback company that's doing this. How does the chargeback company protect themselves from this type of ATO? Well, taking your first question, um, the way that, that's kind of why I want to talk about this because there's not a way to really set your rules or do anything like that. Um, you know, for a merchant who's experiencing this type of fraud, I think what it is is to go back to basics as far as the manual stuff. Um, try to filter yes. out as much as possible. I know. Uh, <laughs> yes. Could you tell how painful it was for me to say that, by the way? Um, <laughs> I'm having flashbacks to the very first time you spoke at CMP <laughs> in a merchant-only <laughs> panel and people were asking you how to prevent orders and you were like, 
you know, just go in manually and do this and call the customer. And everyone's kind of looking around. And I'm like, uh, that works if you have 20 orders a day, does it work? Um, <laughs> but you can filter it out. So you can filter out by, you know, the popular uh, products you can, I, it's almost as if you have to be hit by this first in order to know what they're going to hit. However, I will say there is one of the chargeback guarantee companies and only one of all the ones that I talked to. Um, I will say there, there are several more that will probably never fall for this again, but um, there's one who had had seen the um, attempts and never once passed one and never once got a chargeback. And I was ah. very, very impressed with them. Um, I had a call with the person who is in charge of their rules, but the, I think the reason why they do this is because this company is one of the only ones that isn't a hundred percent automated. They do, they don't ever actually auto decline orders. They require, um, train manual reviewers to look at the orders. And See, that's the so thing. that's right. I know, I know it goes right back to <laughs> manual well, I mean, and, automated. And I, I talk about this. <laughs> They're the length. only ones I know that have prevented it though. So I guess right. I'm kind of walking into your argument on that. But I, you know, and you know, I've mentioned this, the, the idea that any company, any fraud provider out there can be completely automated and rely strictly on software is a facade. I, you I have to have that. a human. You have to have a balance. Oh, right. Yeah, I agree with that. So I, I, it's like, ah, it's so frustrating. But you can't <laughs> manual review every order. And that's like, you know, you kind of have to go by the law of averages. And you, and you know, but you don't have to. Even Apple, when they pulled their, when they pulled their stuff, when they were being eaten alive, when they pulled their stuff, and I say they re manual reviewed everything, it wasn't everything. It was the items that were being hit. Specifically, you know, that $500 range that was, and on up at that point, you would get that call. That call was coming. You could bet on that. Right. So, and, and that's that's what you're saying is that you you look at, basically you're looking at the, the, the from, a fraud, from a fraudster point of view, the novice fraudsters will go to your website and they'll pick the most expensive item mm -hmm. and they'll try to hit that. The more experienced fraudsters, they won't do that. They're looking at, you know, second, third tier or something like that. But you're always looking at something that's going to be, be easy to resell and that uh, is, is going to be easy enough to get. So it's, you know, maybe not the decked out MacBook Pro, maybe the MacBook Air. Maybe not the Samsung Note 10 Plus 5G, maybe just the Samsung Galaxy 10, mm -hmm. something like that is, is what you're looking at. And I, I think it's easy enough to, and I think and I you're saying say those the same middle thing. Ground, yeah, those middle ground laptops are, are definitely what was being targeted. Right. So it's more mm -hmm. experienced fraudsters. They, and they yeah. understand that, you know, once you change it at the bank, I, we don't give a damn about the merchant. It's going to go through. Right. Well, these fraudsters are actually doing something different too, because the majority of online fraudsters are the ones, you know, they're the ones who are committing the crime. They're the ones who are actually entering in the item, the information, sure. whether it's into a bot system or whatever it's into, they're the ones actually making the purchase. In this right. case, they're actually defrauding the bank and the and a, not the cardholder, a unassuming consumer who isn't related to the actual card, which um, when we were isn't doing getting that, the bill. When the, we were they're doing the ones that. they're doing that more upstream, right. and then they're letting it all kind of you know. It, so, and it seems to be working more. And, and when when that was happening with Shadow Crew, and and with Carter's Market, and even on up through the 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 days of evolution, when when that stuff was going on. What, what you could say about the attacker at that point, most of the time, the attacker was not in country. Right. So he right. was having to rely on the mules. It was just easier at that point to have the mules even place the order. So the attacker wouldn't, you know, the person that was out of country, either in, you know, the Ukraine or Brazil or whatever, instead of him having to place the orders and worrying about spoofing IPs and everything else like that, it was just easier to place that ad on Indeed or Monster, get some mules signed up to order these items. You know, I, I, we run a company, you're going to use the company card, go ahead and order it, it'll ship, then you'll reship it to us, we'll pay you, you know, 30, 50 bucks a package was what was going on. So we could say that at that point, it was just out of country uh, attackers that were setting up these scams like that. Right. Well, and I just thought of something. Um, I think actually I could argue and I would argue that this is coming back because merchants are relying on technology because yes. the technology has made it harder to place <laughs> orders in bulk. However, 
so, I mean, I, I don't, I never want to disparage. I mean, I think that there is definitely a place for new technology, um, as well as for humans looking at things, um, playing off of those strengths and having a balanced risk, risk stack is extremely important and something that I work with clients on all the time. Right. Um, but it's something that, um, the challenge is when you're a company who is relying solely on technology or you don't have the skills in house to know when do we go manual? When do we not? Right. Um, what do we do when we go manual? Like what's our standard operating procedure or any of that? Then you start to have problems, but also you have to know this is a problem before you know that you need to go manual. And it's kind of an expensive problem to have before you, you know, before it's caught. I agree. So, you know, Carice, I was, and you, you mentioned that. It's, it's this idea. So the company itself may not have anyone there who's yeah. trained enough to be able to do the job they need to do to, 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 to recognize what's going on. And that hit me. It was a couple of months ago. I was at a presentation and I have a guy walk up to me. And he says, I am the network security administrator for the county. Hmm. And then he looks at me and says, can I tell you something? I was like, what's that? And he's like, I don't know anything about the job whatsoever. Ugh. Yeah, it doesn't and surprise like, you. That makes me sad. Oh, I'm like, what the hell, man? And he's right. like, and he tells me flat out, he's, he was the most honest person. I, he, he, was, he was scared and everything else. He was yeah. like, what we do is we just rely on tools to... Uh, to do the job for us, you know, mm. we, we install them and the tools so far are handling it. And I'm like, dude, what are you doing, man? Wow. So yeah. it's not just, it's not just merchants. It's this entire right. spectrum of cybersecurity that, that we're putting people in positions that aren't properly trained to stop the problems that are out there. <laughs> I, yeah, I mean, it's something that I see in my consulting all the time. Um, actually a, client that I'm just about to finish up. And, you mentioned it's like that, that to as me well. before we started I recording. did. I know. And I knew that's where you were headed. I knew you were baiting me. Um, no, I, I mean, I really, uh, it's been a challenge for me because I've had to kind of do some mental gymnastics around, well, who owns this? Because there's high expectations, but currently there's not a desire to bring someone in full time who has the knowledge. And right. um, it was challenging. However, it was doable, um, you know, over a four month process, um, to train the people, you know, right people to do each part. And it's kind of like an orchestra now, um, <laughs> rather than right. being centralized, but it's something, um, I think that what it is, is it, it comes down to the fact that this is such an overlooked, uh, industry, not, I don't mean it as an industry, but an overlooked thing that companies have to do when they accept products, uh, accept payment online, whether it's for your power bill or whether it's for a new pair of shoes or whether it's for, you know, online games or right. whatever it's for. Um, and so it, it's a lack of understanding until merchants have what I generally call when I'm speaking at events, the oh shit moment. Sure. Um, when the chargebacks come in and they're like, just make them stop. And they call someone like me and they say, well, there's an off button somewhere in this building, right? To just turn off chargebacks. So can you do that? Or you have a magic wand, right? Well, right. I mean, there is one way to turn off chargebacks, but that's to turn off sales. So sure, I sure. generally don't recommend that. Um, but there are things if you understand the process and the rules and you understand the type of fraud and exploits that are happening to your company that you can do things. And there are a lot of great options now, way better than a few years or, you know, five, 10 years ago where you don't necessarily have to have someone who understands fraud super well within your company. Right. Do but I they should understand enough a, to, oh, to understand what products are at danger. Yes. 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 <laughs> a, a lot of times what happens is someone in customer service finance or the warehouse gets kind of looped in because they have this general curiosity that they'll go chase down and figure out what happened and then try to figure out how to stop it next time. Right. Um, and I would say that 90% of the people who are in fraud and who are listening to this podcast probably were one of those people. Um, at least if you're in the U S if you're in right. other countries, like, I mean, Israel, they get, you know, trained by security. So sure. it's, it's a different situation there, but, um, or by their military, but. Okay. So, so um, yeah, and I hate to keep rushing because, but I know you have to leave here in a few minutes. Um, I do. So, so, okay. I so I want to talk about this all day. <laughs> from a merchant point of view, from a merchant protection point of view, right. it's, it's a combination of not just relying on the tools and the automation of the tools, but also having the human in there that 
has enough recognition to be able to spot the, mm-hmm. the problem areas and then do some sort of manual follow up from there. Is yeah, that well, s- at first, it's really important. The only way for you to really know what type of fraud your company is seeing is by digging into the chargebacks. Sure. So looking at your chargebacks and then going back and looking at the original order, figuring out what it looked like. If you're doing that and you're seeing orders that have the billing and shipping address match, the AVS matches, everything looks looks great when the order was placed. And then you get this chargeback. This could be what happened. And that was really what I, why I wanted to talk about it was because I think that for a lot of people who found this, this was not something that they even thought could happen. Um, because you know, none of us other than you were committing this crime 15, 20 years ago. Yeah. And and that's, that's what, (laughs) that's what's blowing my friggin' mind is what you just said. No, no one thought it could happen. Shit. It was going on 20 years ago. Right. But that you and I talk about this all the time, either online or offline, right? Like a lot of times what happens is we're always looking for the next new thing to know about. And we kind of forget that the other, you know, those old things could be added up or sliced and diced and changed around a little bit to work again. Um, I mean, I saw that, I think I said this before, but I saw that with a really large digital company, um, a year or two ago, they switched fraud providers and had a set of fraud happen within a week that they hadn't seen in like five years. And I ended up, having a text exchange with the current fraud manager and the previous one, because I know them both very well. And, but they're not really in contact with each other. So mm-hmm. I was kind of the middle person and asking the new guy, Hey, is this exactly what you're seeing? Da, da, da. Yep. Okay. Um, Hey, did you guys carry over the, the old rules into the new system? No. Well, no, because we, we hadn't <laughs> had that problem in so long. Well, no. <laughs> there's a reason you hadn't had that problem. Well, I don't think that they were. Yeah. I mean, I think it was more just like, a lot of times when you're working with a new fraud provider, especially with machine learning, they say, we just want your last 50 to 100 confirmed fraud orders, and then we'll be able to build a fraud model on it. You know what's and funny? I actually think that that's a, that usually makes sense. But the challenge is if there was something previously that worked, people, fraudsters are still trying it every single day. Oh, yeah. That one time that the window is left open, oh, just yeah. a crack. So, um, you know, what's, yeah, what's really funny, you mentioned, you, you mentioned that, you know, the problem is that, that things are siloed because, yeah. because you've got the, you've got the, the consumer that's being, the cards being stolen from, you've yep. got the bank where the ATO happens, then you've got the merchant. And but, you have you know, the consumer who's, who's using right. the card too. But you've yeah. also got the silos of the fraud providers and the merchants as well. That mm-hmm. side of the silo system as well. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you've got the silos of, you know, every fraud provider has, well, not every, but a lot of them have consortiums, right? But you only have the data within the tools that that consortium, you know, within the merchants that use that same tool. Um, You've got a lot of things like if there's, uh, I mean, there are cases where the fraud provider and the merchant talk pretty regularly with each other, if that's the fraud provider you're using. Um, and then you've got a situation where, you know, if you attend conferences like I do and you do and a lot of other people do, where you can get in a room with other providers and other merchants, et cetera, and figure out what everyone's seeing. Um, and there are other forms of technology coming out that I'm pretty excited about that allow collaboration on a different level, right, right. Um, which I think will be, you know, very helpful in the next generation. But um, in, in the meantime, I wish I had a solid, Hey, if you do this, this isn't going to happen anymore. That's not the case. I think this is more a situation of know that this exists, know that it, it actually isn't new, but that maybe your technology is, is so good that it's requiring fraudsters to kind of go back to basics. Sure. And then the merchant has to be willing to go back to basics too, for at least a little while. And I will throw out the uh, offer that if any merchant, I'm, I'm kind of hesitating because I want to make sure that I respond and I've been so far behind, especially with this huge project I'm wrapping up. But, um, if there are merchants who are seeing this right now and you're like, we're getting hammered or even, you know, fraud guarantee companies. Um, and if you haven't talked to me already, um, (laughs) I've got a list of the identifiers. It is still pretty manual. They're not things that you can set, um, 
rules, uh, linear rules on, but they could be helpful to your manual review team that I'd be happy to pass off, um, you know, to verified merchants. And that, that was um, the second question that I had. I think you just answered it there. So yeah. it seems like whether you're the fraud provider or the merchant, it, it still boils down to having some sort of manual interaction as well. Yeah, that's always going to be a component. I think that, you know, even as we get into AI, right, there's always going to need to be a human component yes, because yes, yes. you can look at two identical orders and one could be fraud and one could be completely legitimate. I forgot what company was talking to me and they were like, well, come on over here. We'll show you how it's completely automated. No humans are in the system whatsoever. I'm, I'm sitting there going, really, really? I have no interest in seeing that. None. <laughs> <laughs> well, and, and I would, I mean... I would agree there are, depending on the company, there are some who have done a pretty good job of that, but actually that has to do with business priorities and the pricing and everything else. I mean, there's a couple of really big companies who have decided that their price point is so low that they don't really care about um, individual fraud as much as they do the right. integrity of the security of their system and um, ensuring that people can sign up quickly. You're right. So, it's where do your priorities lay? Right. Exactly. And what are you selling? What's your price point? Who is your target audience? What type of fraudsters do you attract? What countries are you in? Mm -hmm. What payment methods are you accepting? There's a lot of, a lot of things that go into determining what the best fraud, uh, strategy is to prevent it. And so, um, certainly I don't want to say like blanket statements, but, I do have concerns when I am reviewing technology for merchants and uh, the merchant is told that having a completely automated system is a hundred percent good. Uh -huh. um, and that that's way better than having any humans review it. And I like for these third party systems and I would argue that that's not always the case. And I've actually could, I mean, I, I realize that I'm going to make a few people mad by saying that, but I can back it up. So I mean, I'm not going to back it. it up on the air. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not going to go through the reasons on the air because I'm doing you guys a favor, but I mean, um, I'll say it in a heartbeat. <laughs> <laughs> I know. Um, yes, we've established already that you're the, um, you're the Howard Stern and I'm the Robin. I mean, you, you've heard what I, what, you, somebody starts saying something like that. And I've, I've even done it during this show today. Mm -hmm. It's just, it's just, you'll hear me go, uh-huh. Yeah. <laughs> well, you'll call the shit shit, whether it really is or not. Like that's, the, that's the difference. I'm like in my mind thinking of a hundred different situations where there might be one outlier where that isn't the case. And so I have to like qualify it, but um, that's why we balance each other out. But yeah, I mean, I definitely don't want to say that you're, you know, screwed. I think the first, the first um, step in all of this is to keep an eye on your chargebacks, see what yeah. the orders look like, you know, prior to, and then if you're seeing these that you're like, huh, is it friendly fraud or is it one of these situations that Carice and Brett were talking about? Right, right. Honestly, the best thing to do when you're looking at a chargeback like that and you can't figure it out, pick up the phone and make a phone call to the person that placed the order. I agree. I agree. I, that, I don't that say that stops on a, a lot of fraud right there. Well, I'm actually talking more on the chargeback side, like after you've gotten the chargeback right. even, but it, it does stop fraud there too, but you don't have a lot of time at the upfront, but um, you know, depending on dollar size of the order, et cetera, that might be something that you can right. do. But um, you know, if you're ever looking at a chargeback and you're just not sure what exactly happened, you can pick up the phone and call the person that placed the order and find out um, because that's not just going to help you with that order right? If that order went through and it was successful and it was fraud, chances are you have a hundred more that you just haven't right. gotten a chargeback for yet. So it, it is really important. And there are some merchants who are doing a really good job at this and it makes me so happy. I mean, even if, or especially if they're, they're merchants that I haven't worked with on my chargeback system and they're looking at the details to be able to understand the business intelligence and understand what fraud they're missing and understand what processes need to be fixed. Like they always get a gold right. star in my book. <laughs> and I, I'll say, you know, with me, you know, I've worked with camera merchants and I've, yeah. I, I have a really, I have a place in my heart for these guys because, know. you know, they're operating on a two to 3% margin. Yeah, so, absolutely. But the risk is high, right? Yeah. So yeah, if and someone I, gets I stolen, say, they're up through the whole thing. You know, I, I would say that it's important that, that when you're operating on such a small margin like that, that you're going to do whatever you need to do to make sure that your order is proper. That's why I've recommended these, these chargeback type companies to these people. Right. Um, that being said too, I, I just want to remind people, and I've talked about this before, an online criminal, an attacker has a toolbox. 
And in this toolbox, mm. he has the, the lower level attacks, you know, the social engineering attacks, spoofing phone calls, things like that. And he has the higher level attacks, you know, the, the uh, man in the middle attacks, the, the stuff like that. He also has the, the history of attacks. You know, the, the, the tools that worked 20 years ago, hmm. he still has those tools in his box along with the newer tools. And as he becomes better as a, as a carpenter of fraud, <laughs> he knows how to use these tools better and better in conjunction with each other. So it's, it's important to understand that, that, that just because you've got a brand new toy in the fraud department, does not mean hmm. that you can forget about that old toy that you put up on the shelf. <laughs> you know, it's, you have to remember every single thing, every single day. Right. Yeah. And, and that's true. And I do notice that a lot. Um, that's not to say that the people who are joining fraud prevention now don't have value. Um, a lot right. of times they bring in new perspectives that those of us that have been staring at the same thing for, you know, 10, 15 years are like, oh yeah, I can see that that could be different, but, or could be done differently. But there is something to be said for some of us, uh, a project manager I worked with on this project, um, she called me a dinosaur. Um, I, I didn't know, like I said, I, I told her how impressed I was that she picked up so much in a month and a half. I said, there's some fraud. She didn't know a thing when we started. And I said, there are some fraud managers I know that wouldn't be able to regurgitate all that you just did in a totally different context. I was blown away. And she said, well, they don't have a dinosaur. And I'm like, what? Wow. And she goes, well, you're the, you're the fraud dinosaur. I'm like, hey, wait a second. I'm not that old. And second of all, I think that some of my knowledge isn't outdated. Um, but <laughs> there is a case for those of us who have been around a long time who have seen these things before. And, and I have seen these things before, but I think the difference is that when those things were happening before, when you guys were doing it, those chargebacks never really hit the merchant. You're right. They were pretty right. segregated. Uh, it's because the chargeback rules were a lot more strict around the fraud reason code back then than they are now. Right. And so the banks were forced to take that hit. You're absolutely right. Um, that that, so that would have been why it wasn't paid attention to. Exactly. Right, right. So those of us merchants back then, I mean, I was aware it was happening, but I didn't realize how big or how much or anything because it never trickled down. Right. Um, whereas now it is because there aren't as many checks and balances in the fraud reason code chargebacks that ensure that only the right ones that are the merchant's fault are going to them. Sure. Um, for any merchant who is screaming that this isn't fair, I totally agree with you. But right now, um, I've tried to start those conversations with card brands as well as with a few banks, or especially the one bank that it was happening to most. I didn't get anywhere. Um, I know that there are spring conferences coming up. So, and I know that, you know, card brands show up there. So um, sorry guys, but <laughs> sorry card brands, but that's, I mean, sometimes that's the best thing to do is just to bring that up as a topic. And I agree. Say, it is. How, yeah, how are you going to enforce the rules on the issuers who are, the point of compromise is on them. We're doing everything we possibly can. No, I agree. And you know, my, my point again is that, Hey, that's the hand you've been dealt. You could, you could <laughs> bitch and moan and complain about it as much as you want to. Hopefully it will change, it. but you got to play the hand you've got right now. Right. Right. And I think trying to prevent it and, and trying to sift through to a small amount of uh, orders that may be, um, uh, maybe risky, uh, especially if you've seen this before and, uh, being more manual, doing the lookups, getting to better understand that consumer. Does it make sense that that consumer who lives in the middle of nowhere is buying a $10,000 camera, <laughs> um, when they don't even have an Instagram or a Facebook or anything else? Like those are things, you know, really, we just get back down to basics. Does this make sense? And then, you know, calling the person and, and just asking, Hey, like, what, how'd you hear of our website? Why are you liking this item? Because the person that you're calling isn't the fraudster. The person that you're calling is an unassumed person who just signed up to accept a package and put a, it in a box. They're not going to socially engineer you. It's going to be pretty obvious right. that uh, they didn't accept the package. And that really at the end of the day is how that one fraud prevention company caught those is that they took the time to make those phone calls. And once they did that, they realized something is up and it's weird. Right. Right. Um, so yeah, I mean, we covered a lot despite just talking about, well, just one fraud type. I think that we were able to, um, yeah, talk about a good. lot of different prevention <laughs> strategies, et cetera. Um, and we have 
so many, yeah, we have so many really cool topics and interviews coming too. So, um, well then let's close this episode out. You've got an appointment. I do. Yes, (laughs) (laughs) I do. And I don't, yeah, I, I probably will have to race on out of here. Yes. You're going to have to speed. Yeah. That's what's going to happen. So, that's I'm not going to admit to breaking the law. Oh, uh, see, I speed all the time. <laughs> 130 on I-75. Absolutely. Uh, is that a violation? Oh, I guess you're not on parole now. It's a but big I violation if I were on parole. It's a big crime too. But you know what? At least I'm not stealing money. Uh, I think the editor might want to cut that out. Just saying. You might want to ask them that. Okay. That's it for our episode today. Thank you for joining us, and we hope you've learned a lot. You know, we've got so many more topics to cover to help protect you and your company from fraud, so please, please subscribe to the Online Fraudcast to be alerted to when a new episode is out, and please tell your friends. Rate and review where you can to help others learn about these topics as well. And we always love hearing from you, uh, what you love about the podcast, how we can improve, what topics you want to hear us discuss. You can find the online broadcast on Facebook or find us individually on LinkedIn. Until next time, stay informed, stay vigilant, and stay secure.